Welcome to the Fearless Health Podcast with host Dr. Anne-Marie Barter. Dr. Barter is on a mission to help people achieve their health and wellness goals and help men and women live their best lives fearlessly. Dr. Barter is the founder of Alternative Family Medicine and Chiropractic in Denver and Longmont, Colorado. Dr. Sethi, thank you so much for joining us. We're so excited to have you here today. Can you please tell us how you got into the integrative medicine space and everything that you're doing? Love to hear your story. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me today, Dr. Barter. So, you know, my journey kind of started when I was um, a little younger. I was in college and had gotten a phone call actually from my, my sister telling me that my dad was very ill. He was in the hospital and was um, being diagnosed essentially with cardiovascular disease. He had, I think, four or five arteries that were blocked at the time. Now, we didn't know that he had any history of heart disease or diabetes or anything that, you know, would be risk factors for this condition. But essentially, they, um, you know, she told me that he had to stay in the hospital. They were going to be cracking his chest open tomorrow and doing bypass surgery. So you can imagine my shock, <laughs> you know, um, feeling like my father was a healthy man. And then knowing that, you know, he was going to be undergoing this really huge surgery that, you know, could indeed result in him not making it through. So he did make it through. And um, it was in that moment that, you know, I had actually been reading a book by Deepak Chopra called, um, Spontaneous healing and another one with uh, Dr. Andrew Weil about nutrition and optimal health. And I started really considering the fact that, you know, his condition could have been prevented. And, um, you know, he wasn't, he was, he had the bypass surgery and was given some basic recommendations like eat a low fat diet and try not to eat sugar and make sure you exercise. And you can imagine how that story plays out. Many of you. Um, many of your listeners probably know that, you know, those sorts of recommendations weren't really helpful over the last couple of decades to most people and his health continued to deteriorate. So when I was um, looking at, you know, what I wanted to do with my life, I, I decided that I wanted to go into healing and um, had really kind of approached um, that through medical school and um, chose to go to osteopathic school. And then when I completed that, um, really found myself wanting more, wanting more information about, you know, natural ways to heal the body, really understanding how it was that my meditation practice that I'd had since I was around 13 or 14, you know, might be having an influence on my health. And um, from there, did my fellowship with Dr. Andrew Weil, who, you know, had been a mentor of mine through his books and, um, and continued on my journey with functional medicine. And at some point realized that in my conventional practice, I just wasn't really getting the opportunity to integrate those principles, a lot of it being lifestyle medicine and a real understanding that health doesn't happen in the doctor's office, but really happens in our patients' lives. So I left, you know, my conventional practice and opened up my own integrative and functional medicine practice and kind of got to this point. That's awesome. That's awesome. I... I want to come back to the meditation piece, but I, I want to touch on something that I think a lot of people are confused about. There's definitely two subsets of practices. There is the functional integrative approach, which you're now doing. And then there was just the traditional approach. How are the, these two practices different? Like what, what do you see the differences in these two practices since your toe has been in both 
sides of the water, really, right? Absolutely. So, you know, I would describe kind of traditional or conventional medicine practices more of treating symptoms and treating disease. And so oftentimes, you know, what happens is patients come in and we might say something like, you know, you we're starting to see some uh, increases in your blood sugar, or there's some lab work that's suggesting that you might be um, prone to cardiovascular disease because your cholesterol is elevated. And so what ends up happening is that there might be some, you know, small recommendations given like, oh, you really need to change your diet or go out and exercise. But you know, for the most part, you kind of wait until the disease already happens in the body before we begin to treat it. So it's really more akin to sick care. We kind of wait for people to get sick before we actually provide them with resources or treatments. And um, my interest was really more in prevention. And what I found is that by understanding from an integrative medicine standpoint or functional medicine standpoint, we can really understand that there are root causes that oftentimes, you know, disease is starting 10, 15, 20 years before it manifests as symptoms in the body. And so there are ways to acknowledge that and understand that, you know, if we were to change the way we eat or change the way that we move or change how we sleep or be managing our stress, you know, day in and day out, that we would really prevent kind of that tipping over point um, into where we end up with chronic disease and symptoms. So that's kind of what defines the difference for me. And of course, you know, I do walk the line. um, I do walk, you know, right down the middle of those because sometimes we do need to use prescription drugs. And so um, I think that they're for acute things and for life-saving type um, emergencies, it's, there's nothing better. We've made great strides in medicine, but what we really have you know, not come a long way is understanding, well, how do we prevent that to begin with? And many of these older traditions of medicine, like, you know, Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, you know, medicine that's coming from sort of South America, they knew how to do that really well. And um, so a lot of those modalities, understanding how to use herbs and, you know, spices and things like that in in your healing every day, you know, have been integrated now into into the integrative medicine um, practices. That's a, that's so well said, and I I completely agree with you. It is amazing in South America countries, um, a country uh, South American countries that they will just go through and they'll be like, that's cinnamon, that's for blood sugar, that's this, that, and they can just pick it off the tree and they know exactly the condition that it's for. We've been doing this for such a long time. I got such an education when I was down there, and how amazing these people are, and they're just really honed in on their environment. Yeah. And I, I have found, you know, now doing the work that I do that the herbs, uh, almost every single time work better than the prescriptive medications. And I think it's just because there, there are just other properties of plants that assist us in maybe supporting our immune system while it's killing, you know, they're killing bacteria or parasites or whatever that the drugs just can't do because they're, they're singularly, you know, one or two ingredients. So, um, yeah, that's, that's wonderful. I, I completely agree. And I think it's just the part, you know, pharmaceuticals absolutely have their a time and a place, right. But when you're really looking at the whole plant, it just assists so much more versus a micro dose of a hardcore pharmaceutical. And sometimes that's indicated, you know, it just depends. So you touched on meditation, which is so cool and so interesting because you have a very lifestyle driven practice. That's what you've said and really transitioning people's lifestyle to be healthier overall. So how does, how does meditation work into your practice and 
what results have you seen from, um, from meditation? Yeah, it's such a great question because I, I would say if I had to pick the one thing that has probably, you know, pushed the needle the most for my patients, it is having that practice in their life. And it could be a breathwork practice or it could be a meditation practice. I think breathwork is oftentimes used to get the body ready, you know, for the meditative practices. And so the way that we approach it in my practice is, um, you know, patients will oftentimes come in and, you know, the thing that's easy to gravitate towards are the labs and, you know, the data and, you know, the diet and, and we do all that. And that's fine. I think that's, you know, it's getting the body kind of prepared and, you know, de-inflamed and all of that. But, um, you know, it, it's, it's almost a non-negotiable, to be honest, in my practice that my patients at least try to engage in something on a daily basis. And so I'll oftentimes get them started if they've never um, sat in a meditative practice or had a walking meditation, which is perfectly fine, or, you know, done a breathwork practice, then what we'll do is we'll start with just some simple, either one minute mindfulness practices, you know, where we, where I ask them to really focus on the breath for one minute at a time. And, you know, anybody can do that, right? Mm -hmm. So it's the practice really of just bringing your awareness back to that thing. And in this case, it would be the breath. And so we know, you know, so one of the biggest, I would say, um, issues that people tell me they have is they say, well, my mind wanders. I just can't quiet my mind. You know, I'm not a great meditator. And, you know, here's the truth. Your mind is supposed to wander, right? You're, you're, you're supposed to be generating thought. That's what it does. That's its job. But what you come to realize is that your, your consciousness or your, you know, the, the part of you that's kind of aware of what your, what your mind is thinking and knowing that you're having thoughts, that is actually separate than your thoughts. So that's actually, you know, when you bring that piece or what I'm going to call attention back to your breath, you're taking it off of your thoughts. And so the practice of meditation is simply just focused attention or focused awareness. And so, you know, every time your mind wanders and you notice that now you're down, you know, this long path of, oh my gosh, I have to get the kids. And then there was this and then that, and oh, geez, my mind wandered again. That's okay. You just bring it back to the breath and back to the breath and back to the breath. And even advanced meditators will tell you that some days they might have a thousand thoughts, you know, every, every second, you know, um, and some days they notice that their mind is the thoughts are really quiet and they're able to really focus on that breath. So that's a way to start. Um, I'm also a big fan of technology. And um, I oftentimes will direct people towards heart math and muse. So um, these are two tools that will help you to use biofeedback to train yourself in meditation. The first being heart math and what it's doing is actually measuring your heart rate variability. And when we notice that your heart rate variability goes into what's called a coherence pattern, it flips your brain into that coherence pattern as well, which gets you into that meditative state. So it's just a little tiny, you know, kind of looks like this, um, you know, the headphones wire clips to your ear, hooks up to your phone, and you start to focus on the breath and focus on the breath. And as you, you know, get your heart into that coherence rate pattern, you're going to notice that the colors on the app change and you get that biofeedback to start to change your breath or to focus again on the breath. The other one is 
the same sort of idea, but it's focused on the patterns that are put out by your brain. So the EEG and it's called the muse and it's this little headband that you kind of hook up here. And what's really cool about it is, you know, if you like to listen to the ocean, let's just say you can set your app on that. And then as your brain waves go from, you know, beta, which is the brainwave pattern we're in right now, because we're focused and we're having this discussion into alpha, which is when the body starts to relax and kind of the, you start to sort of not focus in as well into theta, which is meditation, you're going to notice that the ocean starts to calm down and you start to hear birds chirp and it's really calm. And then as you begin to generate thoughts and you're focusing on your thoughts, you notice that the ocean gets stormy again and you're oh reminder. Okay. Back on the breath, focus back on the breath. And you know, you notice. And so in this way, you can use these tools to really begin to train yourself how to meditate and you can see the feedback, which I think is really cool for people. So that's, that's one of the, you know, those are some of the ways that I get started with, with my patients. And I think that's great because the biggest complaint that I've heard about meditation is a lot of type A personality types want to do it right. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And well, and they want to, and so they feel like they're failing when their mind wanders or when uh, thoughts come into their head, they feel like they're failing at this and they can't do it. And since they're so driven and so a type personality, right. And I can relate to that because I'm very, <laughs> but they, they just feel like they're a failure and then they put it down because they're not good at it because they've been good and high achievers at all these things their entire life. And they're who needs this because they're wired, but tired. And so, you know, they're just an incredible fatigue all around and completely stressed out and and hard pushers, but they just feel defeated. So what have you seen meditation improve in people's health? Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, I want to follow up what you just said with there's no such thing as a bad meditation. It's no such thing. Um, Because really, it's just the practice. It's like, okay, if you go to the gym and you work out, but it wasn't the best workout, I mean, you didn't fail your workout, you still work the muscle out. So it's the same process. So kind of wrapping your head around that a little differently. so the, the benefits that I've seen are just so across the board. I mean, let me start with some of the kind of parameters and symptomatology that I see improve. You know, I've seen blood pressure improve. I've seen um, blood sugar improve. I've seen inflammatory markers um, get better. I've seen people's, you know, thyroid and hormonal levels begin to balance out. Um, we know that meditation has a very specific effect on the gut microbiome. So it does um, allow for in the better types of microbes to really thrive. And that really makes sense because you're decreasing your cortisol adrenaline response, you know, in the, in the adrenals and allowing that gut to just really be in that parasympathetic state. You know, we know that you're going to absorb your nutrients better. I mean, you actually get about 50% better absorption when you do have a breathwork practice or even a short meditation practice prior to eating a meal. And I think that's why, you know, for decades, for centuries, we've had people, you know, pray, right. Or go into a state of gratitude prior to having the meal, because we know that it improves um, absorption of food and nutrients. So those are some of the big ones, you know, um, and then if we really want to talk, I think what's really exciting right now is that there's there, we have the ability now to really understand very specifically what meditation is doing 
in the brain from the aspect of neuroplasticity. And so I think that's where it gets really exciting because we can actually look at groups of people who have never meditated, put them into a study where they meditate and look at whether or not, you know, parts of their brain have changed. And we are seeing that in fact, it does. We're seeing that there's increases in the the hypothalamus. We're seeing increases in the frontal lobe, the frontal lobe being the part of the brain that is really associated with increased creativity, the feeling of wholeness, just knowing that, you know, we feel connected to things, feeling more love and joy and bliss in our lives. Um, And that the, you know, kind of the other part of our brain, the amygdala, the the kind of where the fear response, where we sit when we have a lot of stress and anxiety and we're kind of in that survival, you know, it tends to get less activated, you know, in these people. We can also take people who are, you know, long-term meditators and kind of see, you know, what their brains look like, you know, compared to, you know, participants that match them in age and lifestyle and kind of notice differences there. So those types of studies have been done. Um, now what, what we're seeing more and more of is this ability to take, um, what we call brain mapping or the ability to actually use that technology that I was describing, like the muse and look at when, when people really are in meditation. So we can see when they get into that theta wave pattern or even high gamma wave pattern that they are in a deep meditation and then be able to measure what serum markers are being produced, you know, and um, are they producing anti-inflammatory type, type markers in their, in their body? And so those studies are, they, there are some that happen done and there are some that are happening currently. And so taking a lot of that data and then sort of going, well, then how does this influence, you know, longevity? You know, how does this influence overall chronic illness? You know, how does this influence changes in um, the, the brain's ability to react, you know, to um, situations very quickly in an anxiety type of way or a calm type of way is, you know, I think where we're headed with all this data. And what it seems like um, is happening, and I'm going to say, you know, right now we've got some evidence for this, but this, you know, this is kind of still being, you know, understood a little bit more is that when we are in these deep states of meditation, like theta and gamma, and we can measure them by EEG, we believe that, you know, there are parts of the brain that are being activated very specifically, the pineal gland and the um, pituitary glands. And we know that those, um, those particular glands put out a number of hormones. The pineal gland specifically puts out melatonin, which, you know, we've come to learn a lot about melatonin, I would say just in the last decade or so. We, we used to think, well, it's just something that the brain produces to make you go to sleep. It's, it's a hormone that's responsible for a lot of different things. And interestingly, the metabolites of melatonin are things that we're all familiar with, like benzodiazepines, like Valium right? So it's why when you're in a meditative state and you're activating melatonin production, it'll metabolize into things that relax your body so that you can stay relaxed through the meditation. We also know that that some of the metabolites look like DMT, which is a very powerful hallucinogen um, that, that we know of. And it's why when some people get into deep states of meditation, they might notice that they're having really, really vivid, you know, kaleidoscope-like type image, imagery that's coming in. We also know that some of the antioxidants that are metabolized from melatonin are really, really powerful, and they actually will signal the genes in an epigenetic fashion um, to turn things on or off 
in a really powerful way and a healing way. So it's kind of like you have this pharmacy in your brain <laughs> um, available to you. And the way to activate it is by getting ourselves into these deeply relaxed meditative states. And then the pituitary gland, specifically, you know, the, the posterior pituitary release, um, releases things like vasopressin and um, nitric oxide, which we know increase blood vessel, um, blood vessels expand and vasopressin acts to dilate the heart. And it's why oftentimes people will come out of these states of meditation feeling, you know, just like their heart is really open and they're feeling a lot of love and joy. And ultimately, you know, I think that's a state that we're all looking for. So if Imagine starting your day every day with that just open feeling of feeling connected and creative and, you know, loving and joyful and looking forward to your day instead of waking up every morning thinking, oh, yeah, here's another day. I've got my chronic pain. I've got my, you know, my, my, you know, headache. Is that going to happen today? I've got this work I have to go to that I'm not excited about. Oh, yeah. And then there's that friend I had that fight with. And, you know, and instead starting your day with just this feeling that's really induced by all the hormones and chemicals that our brain produces from a state of meditation, you know, starting our day with that beautiful feeling of, you know, joy and, and excitement. So that's what I see happen the most um, is that I start to see that my, my patients will, they just approach their lives differently. You know, their mindset literally changes. And I think we're getting very close to seeing how, that really does induce kind of a rewiring of the brain so that they're not reacting as quickly to the things that used to trigger them before, or maybe they would get anxious about before and just have like an alternative pathway to go down instead of the one that they've been used to. Wow. That is powerful for meditation. For starters, meditation's free. It's completely accessible to you. You don't need to do any, I mean, I mean, that is a lot of benefits. I did not realize that about melatonin in the pineal gland. I had no idea. So that was, that's, that's a new information for me, but that is quite powerful. So what case, so you have a patient come in, um, that is wired, but tired, anxious, you know, and in chronic pain and with you, you recommend meditation, diet, other lifestyle changes, which we'll get into in a, in a bit, but how much change are you just seeing with the meditation alone with this patient? That is such a great question. And I, I'm going to just be really, you know, transparent here and tell you that, um, I've, you know, I've been to enough meditation events in my life, like where, you know, where I engage in these week-long events with people. And um, I have seen people, I mean, I've seen this with my own eyes and I'm, you know, I'm a scientist, right? I'm a doctor. Um, I've seen people come in with, you know, chronic debilitating pain in a wheelchair with a walker, you know, it could be anything from, you know, spinal stenosis to a musculoskeletal disease to Parkinson's and, you know, rheumatologic conditions. I have literally seen them, you know, commit to the practice and really get themselves into that state of bliss every day, um, you know, to where they rewire their brain enough that by the end of the week, they're up and, you know, at least taking their first steps out of that walker without pain or, you know, just willing to, um, 
do, you know, move their body in a different way. Um, and the energy is through the roof. So I would say if somebody really commits to this and they are, you know, they're, they're doing it and, and they just, they just decide that their body is, you know, the body has to follow the mind. So when we think something or we have a thought, the body's going to follow, right? So you, you, you know, you get a signal that you have to use the bathroom and you have the thought, oh, I got to go, I got to go to the toilet, I got to use the bathroom. You just go, your body follows, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so in the same way, you know, if your thoughts change to, you know, I am whole, I am healthy, I am pain-free, I have unlimited energy, and you believe that every single day and you do your meditations and connect in with that feeling, then what happens is you begin to feel the emotions of that wholeness and that unlimited energy and that pain-free state, right? And the body doesn't really know the difference between something that's actually happening externally and something that's happening in our mind alone. When we look at the changes, you know, there's some very interesting studies that have been done. And what they do is they'll, you know, they, this has been done in sports a lot. It's, and then, you know, they've done other studies where they've, for example, taken people who have, um, you know, never like, you know, shot baskets. Right. And so they'll, um, give, you know, lessons and set one group up and they, you know, they, they learn to shoot baskets. And then another one, they just tell them to sit and actually envision the, you know, shooting the baskets and with their entire body, you know, what would they be moving? How would that feel? What would it sound like? What would it, you know, what would it smell like to be out on the court playing? And, um, and then at the end, they actually measure kind of the muscle. And then they also, they have another group, which is a control group and they're not doing anything. They're just sitting on the couch. Um, and at the end they measure kind of the, the muscle growth, you know, that would be used in shooting the hoops. And, um, they actually see a 30 to 40% increase in those muscles. Those people didn't do anything but sit on the couch and envision that they were doing this right in the correct way. And they had growth. And the same thing happens with um, people that they've done this, a similar study and they've asked them to play a song on the piano, right? They actually, they see that the impulses to certain fingers that were u- utilized in playing the piano, they've never played the piano before, as well as muscular, mus- musculature has increased. And so when we look back at some of these like high performing athletes, uh, Michael Phelps being one of them, it's really interesting because people would always ask him, you know, what is it that you do? How do you win? You know, so often, you know, what do you do to prepare for competition? And he says, I just think about it and like, imagine myself there from start to finish every single day, you know, every morning he wakes up and he imagines himself on that starting block, diving in what the water feels like, what it smells like, what it tastes like, you know, doing that race and and coming back. And he starts his day that way every day for months. So the brain is having the thought, the brain then produces the hormones and the signaling to the body to activate the right muscles and the right set of hormones and chemicals. And then by the time he gets to the race, the, the body has already experienced it. So it's already had the experience and it knows what to do. It's just going to follow. So I think that's a really fascinating way to explain, you know, what I think we've all historically thought of as, you know, manifesting <laughs> things, you know, mm-hmm. which maybe didn't have any scientific basis for before, but this is how it's, it actually happens. And, and we now, we now can understand that because we have the ability to, to do those studies. So for that person who, you know, comes in with um, tired, but 
you know, wired but tired and, and with chronic pain, you know, imagine starting your day every day, no, just believe, feeling what it would feel like in your body with unlimited energy and, you know, playing ball with your kid, you know, taking a run on the lake, you know, taking your dog out for a walk without, you know, without having the pain, like really, really buying into that and feeling it in your body. You will see that there will be changes that begin to happen in the body that begin to change the production of neurochemicals and things in the body that signal the right genes to turn on and start producing the right proteins to make some of those, you know, some of the body get back to wholeness. So that's, that's kind of, I think what, you know, where I see this work going. I think that's amazing. I, yeah, I had read the similar studies um, of people that were performing the task versus the control group versus the people thinking about the task. And in the study that I read, the people performing the actual task and the people sitting on the sidelines, visualizing themselves performing the task had something between a 10 to 20% difference only from the people performing the task. That's, I mean, that was, that's outrageous. That's incredible. So, I mean, very powerful. That is an awesome plug for meditation. I will just say (laughs) (laughs) for starters, I'm like completely enthralled in this. Um, But you do so much more than just recommend that people meditate and practice. Of course. I want to go into that a little bit. Are some of the things that you really are focusing on with lifestyle changes and practice and what you really feel like also moves the needle? Um, so I'm curious what those are. Absolutely. Well, certainly, you know, if we look at kind of, um, the, the word, you know, yoga even, and, um, understand that what it means is union between the mind and body and, and really kind of the origins of it, the, the idea being that, the reason to do those practices and even Ayurveda, which was more of like the cleansing of the body and keeping the body clean by having the right food in the, in the diet, you know, it was about preparing kind of this body, right. For the, the energy to move through without, you know, obstacles. Right. And, and so, and to prepare to be able to sit in meditation, honestly, that, that was kind of where yoga started. That that's why it was to prepare the body to allow it to be flexible to sit. So of course we have to work on the physical. And I think that, um, you know, the, the thing that people always want to know is, you know, what's the right nutrition for me, right? How do I, how am I supposed to eat? I think it's really, really easy to sell diet out there, you know? And I think, that um, it's low hanging fruit in some ways. I, there was even a show on TV once that was, it was like a reality show called my diet. It's better than your diet. <laughs> oh, wow. I never saw that. <laughs> and I think I, I think I, um, I heard at a nutrition conference once that like asking somebody, you know, change their diet is like asking them to change their religion. Right. It's like a big, mm-hmm. it's a big deal. It is. Um, so I think, you know, I, I think there is a lot of importance to it. I think that maybe we put you know, a little bit too much importance on it and not enough on some of the other things as well. But generally speaking, I mean, my go-to is, you know, really an anti-inflammatory diet or, you know, a lot of times I'll start people off on something like the whole 30. But I think if we look at longevity studies, you know, we're, we're really talking about, um, 
you know, eating things in moderation, really sticking to foods that are kind of anti-inflammatory. So I I do, you know, I do get into that with my patients. We do, and I'm sure you've, you know, had other guests and, you know, you talk with your patients a lot about diet. So without getting into the specifics of any one diet, I think that, I think that what we have to recognize as well is that there, you know, cooking and, and working with food, it can be so enjoyable. And I think sometimes when we restrict so much, it becomes so stressful that people don't want to cook, you know, and they don't, I have so many patients come in that are so restricted in their diets because they've, you know, read something or, you know, done work with, with other practitioners or whatever it is. And they could have done some food sensitivity tests and stuff like that. And um, it's really taken the joy out of eating. And it's so interesting to me that we're in a time where that we have an abundance of food and yet we're so stressed out by it. <laughs> you know? That's a really good way to put it. Yeah. Like it used to be that the stress was there was no food. Like you literally didn't have food and you would starve (laughs) until you had to find food. And that was a stressor, you know, that was a real stressor on our body. Um, and now it's, you know, there's that plus there's, there, there can be a lot of things in our food, right. That, that really do put a stress on our body. So, uh, you know, sticking with organic as much as possible, really sticking with an anti-inflammatory diet. It's really important to look at your, you know, um, blood sugar and, you know, whether or not you're eating foods that convert very quickly into elevating your blood sugar, because that blood sugar response is key to really maintaining, you know, an anti-inflammatory type, um, you know, body as well as, um, really preventing, you know, inflammation in the body, which we now know is kind of the leeway to so many other chronic illnesses. So when we talk about nutrition, that's what I focus on. I also really try to bring in um, healing spices because I think that in our country here, you know, people so are so unfamiliar with cooking with spices. And that might be because we've just kind of, you know, gotten used to eating out a lot. And so we don't really know what's in our food. Um, but there are so many amazing benefits to cooking with spices and it can be so fun and really bring the joy back in, uh, to cooking. If, if you just start to experiment with those. Can you, um, can you go over some of the basics with cooking with spices? Because a lot of folks say, you know, I have spices on my shelf. They've been there for five years. I'm still (laughs) using it. I'm trying to get through it two years, whatever it is. But a lot of times the spices have sat on the shelf for too long or just some of the basics with that to actually get the most out of your food. Of course. That's a great question. Yes. Please don't buy like those, you know, racks that come with pre-filled bottles of spices that may have been sitting in the warehouse for five years before it ends up in your your home. There's no benefit. If you open up a spice and you cannot smell it, that means the aromatic oils are not there any longer. They've, um, you know, they've dissipated into the air. And so your, the benefits is, are very, very, very minute with those particular spices. So generally speaking, you know, trying to buy things, if you can buy things whole and you have a little spice grinder, like a little um, coffee grinder, that's the, that's the best way to optimize the healing benefits you're going to get from your spices. But if that seems like, okay, that might take a little time, then what I recommend is you buy, you know, you buy from sources that are um, probably the bulk section of your grocery stores are going to have fresher because they're going through it frequently. So they're replenishing it. Um, 
and just making sure that you can smell it before you buy it. If you can smell it and it's a, the stronger the smell, the, the more medicinal the spice is. And then when you get home, you know, most things can be stored just in a cabinet, um, not exposed to sunlight. Because a lot of those volatile oils will, um, when they are exposed to light, they're going to start to break down. Um, but if you put it in a darker cabinet, then that's fine. Um, whole spices will last longer, generally speaking, if you keep it in the fridge. And then you just take it out and grind what you need for you know a few months and, and kind of put that in your pantry. Um, and then other than that, you know, I think that rules around spices, you know, to, to release some of the... Um, the flavor and the medicinal compounds, um, a lot of spices require fat. So things like turmeric, you know, which I think a lot of people now know you have to really take it with fat or oils to be able to absorb it. Um, you actually increase the absorption by like 50 to 60%, as well as with um, black pepper, because uh, there's piperacillin and pepper and it, the enzyme there ha helps to activate that. Um, same thing with, um, you know, some other spices as well, like cumin and coriander. So, um, trying to make sure that, you know, if you're going to use those, that you're not just kind of at the end, sort of putting the spices into your food as a dry powder, you're probably not going to really activate, um, activate the spice very much. That's a really good tip. Yeah. Cause a lot of people will, will do something at the end versus, you know, through the cooking process to activate it. I didn't even yeah. think about that. And it's best, you know, a great way to, um, so with, with, uh, with powders, you can do what's called, um, you know, where you, where you take a dry pan without oil and you just, just for like maybe 30 minutes, 30 seconds to a minute, you kind of heat that powder over the heat and then you can add in your, whatever else you're, you're adding and that'll start to activate it with, with whole spices, you can actually cook them. A little bit before you begin to add in your your onions or your garlic or your vegetables or whatever um, for about a minute. Uh, and when you when you put it into the fat in the pan or in the oil in the pan, the minute you begin to smell the aroma of it of the whole spice, like let's say you're using whole cloves or uh, uh, coriander or something like that, you're gonna the minute you smell it, that's when it's ready. And um, and then you add all the rest of your stuff. That's fascinating. That's really fascinating. So it almost sounds like cooking Indian food. That's how it sounds. <laughs> like it's my favorite. It's all spiced out, like tons of spices. I love it. But that almost is what it sounds like. Cause that's the, it seems like the process that they go through or, you know, the steps spices first and then start to add in the rest of the ingredients. Well, there, you know, there was a reason for that. If we think about it, the Indus Valley, which wasn't India at the time, right. It was just the Indus Valley um, is one of the world's oldest, you know, cultures, right? And so they studied things that worked and didn't work. I mean, a lot of things that we're discovering now, you know, they've known forever. It's part of the Ayurvedic, you know, textbook, which is the textbook of medicine, um, you know, in India, because they had studied these things. And um, also the combining of things together, like understanding that, you know, for example, um, if you're eating tomatoes, you know, you might see it as cut up fresh tomatoes in one recipe. And then in another recipe, it's cooked down with fats because you'll get fiber from a raw tomato, but you won't activate lycopene, which is a really powerful antioxidant that can help with, um, you know, preventing breast cancer and prostate cancer. So to, to activate lycopene, you've got to cook it down and with fat, and that's how you release the lycopene and be able to absorb it. So, um, in some of those older traditions that have been around for a long time, you'll see that the 
the foods and spices are prepared in lots of different ways because you do get different benefits depending on how you cook the foods. Wow. That's, that's really neat. And I think I can hear the question or the comment already. Well, I don't know how to cook. I don't really know where to find a lot of this in my grocery store. I can't do a diet. Um, that's too challenging. What do you say when you meet objections about changing the diet or, or cooking more at home? I think just not even changing the diet, but I think cooking at home is a real challenge for a lot of people. And how do you um, remove that barrier for people? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think we are living in a time, well, to, to be honest, it, 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 it can't be easier to do right now because we are surrounded by a variety of things. So for one, you know, there are services like Sunbasket and, you know, there are a number of these services where they will literally send you and you can pick like I want to whole 30 approach or a paleo approach or a vegan approach or whatever you want. And they will literally send you the portioned out foods, you know, with the spices already there. And all you have to do is kind of follow the recipe and kind of throw it together. Usually it takes 30 minutes, you know, so there's that option. I think it was a great way to get started. Um, you can also go to your grocery store and kind of get the semi-prepared foods, you know, where it might be like, um, here's some uncooked salmon with, a, you know, a side of green beans and it'll tell you kind of what's on the salmon and then you take it home and you kind of just follow the oven instructions, right? I think that's a great way to kind of start if you haven't ever done. And then just add what you want to it. I mean, it's your food, you know? So, mm -hmm. um, you know, if you're familiar with, if you grew up with spices like oregano and rosemary and thyme, use those, you know? Mm -hmm. If you're unfamiliar, you don't know how to, um, to cook with turmeric and coriander and cumin, then maybe, you know, one thing that, I, that I've done with my friends um, well, two things actually, which could be really fun, I think, for people to, to do. Um, so we currently have a, a cookbook club and um, we meet every six weeks. And uh, we've just, when we put our group together, we all sort of realized that we were all at the same kind of cook, you know, cooking ability, right? We mm -hmm. all had similar interests. We wanted to cook heavy, uh, healthy, not really meat heavy, uh, you know, a lot of plant-based. Um, it's got to be family friendly. You know, our kids have to eat it. Nothing fancy, no French, you know, French fancy food. Um, <laughs> we didn't want to be doing desserts, you know, so whatever you come up with those rules, you find four or five people that maybe live near you, or maybe you know them through the school or from work or just friends that you have. They're like, oh, I've been really wanting to cook more. Um, and then you pick a the host will pick a cookbook and then everybody can share the cookbook and or find recipes from it and then each person cooks a dish you come together you share a meal and you discuss what worked and what didn't work and there you have it you've got you know six dishes prepared from a cookbook that you may never have picked up before because you you were scared of it you know um so that's one idea and it's just it's we've been doing this now two years and it's been it's been lovely um and we've really explored. Yesterday, we had our cookbook club and we did Korean food, which I'd never cooked before. So that was really cool because it was everything was delicious. Um, and then the second thing that uh, really got me because, you know, I, I didn't always when I was uh, in my conventional practice seeing 35 patients a day working five days a week, you know, and I had my little ones who were currently they're seven and nine, but they were two and five, you know, four at the time. Um, I'd get home and 
I wasn't cooking. I was exhausted. <laughs> you know, um, I was so tired. So we would just be picking up food all the time. I had, you know, delivery apps on my phone. I'd be getting food delivered. And when I went through the fellowship for integrative medicine, I realized, you know what, I've got to change. I've got to change this. And the number one difference that I can make for my family is to be cooking more food at home. And so we started off, um, I found two other friends that live near me and we started what we call a, um, a meal share. And so one day a week, one of us would cook a dinner for all three families and then we would go and deliver it. And it may, it may have been as simple as baked salmon and, you know, a side of spinach and green beans or something, but, but that way each of our three families had a hot meal, you know, to, to come home to and be able to serve our families. And we had one day during the week where we could kind of um, spend two hours, maybe um, cooking a meal that we were going to kind of experiment with and try out new things and then serve to, to two other families. So that, that was another really kind of fun way to approach cooking. And it was so fun to just try, you know, new foods and our kids were really into it and they got to try new foods and um, it just reinforced and sort of, made me a lot more comfortable and excited about being in the kitchen again, because I hadn't been for some years, you know, with my job and with the kids. So I, I get it. I understand where, you know, people are coming from, but I think it doesn't have to be, you know, it can be fun and it doesn't have to be difficult to approach. That's great. That's great advice. And it sounds like you have come a long way, you know, since your conventional practice to now, what are some things that you do on a daily, weekly basis to keep yourself healthy and feeling great? Great question. Um, so my meditation practice is 100%, you know, my priority. It's been with me since I was probably around 13 to 14 years old. And um, so that's, that's my daily practice. And now we've gotten my kids into it as well. So they'll come up and do it with me. Um, I think on a daily basis, we try to get outside. We're we're in Austin, so you're you got you're in Colorado. You're in Boulder, so you're you're lucky as well. You've got great you know places to go hike and all that. But my kids are you know they're starting to get into video games, and you know um, the screen time thing is always a battle. And so I tell them, all right, you're doing kind of one brain destroying activity. We've got to do one brain building activity. So we get we get out in nature a lot. We get outside um, at least every day. And, um, and then I think, you know, the kind of the, the other thing that I, that I think has made a big difference in my health is that I do intermittent fast every day. It's something I started about a year and a half ago. And I, I did notice a big shift in just my energy and how I feel. Um, so those are kind of my top three that I, you know, it's definitely going to be on a daily basis. Awesome. And where can people find you? Where can people find your book? Can you tell us a little bit about that before we sign off today? Absolutely. So I am in Austin, Texas. Um, my website is drshellysethy.com. And so people can find me there. Um, my book is called Built to Thrive. And it is available on Amazon. Uh, you can you can find it there. And occasionally we have um, free downloadable copies on my website. So from time to time, you know, that's on there as well. But um, 
There are some great recipes. You mentioned Indian food. Um, there are some great Indian recipes. Ooh. They're handed down from my grandmother to my mom to me. <laughs> <laughs> Promise they're not hard at all. Wow. <laughs> so. I'm interested for sure. <laughs> Love Indian food. <laughs> yeah. And actually I post recipes on my Instagram account as well. And they seem to get, they get a lot of response. Um, so there it, it's Dr. Shelley Sethi on Instagram as well. And I've got recipes there also. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us here today. All the links will be down below too. You're so welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed learning with us today, please give us a five-star review, comment, like, and share our podcast with your friends and family. As always, if you'd like to learn more information about today's guest, please head over to Fearless Health podcast.com for links to their site and other educational resources.